0: Welcome to the Modern Lawyer Podcast. My name is Anna Napadier, and thanks for joining us. Today's episode is the first in a three-part series on the law firm business model and how COVID-19, the recession, and rising competition will cause it to rapidly change. Our guest today is someone who is uniquely qualified to talk about this subject, Meredith Williams Range is the Chief Knowledge and Client Value Officer at the preeminent law firm Sherman & Sterling. Her portfolio of functions at the firm is impressive. Her role spans technology, knowledge management, pricing, and generally ensuring that each representation the firm takes on is a win-win for the client and for the firm. In this episode, we talk about how Meredith got her start on the business side of law firms, how it is incumbent on law firms to grow out of their existing business models, playing the role of the bad guy in flat fee pricing negotiations, and all of the value that law firms can offer clients aside from traditional legal services. This is 2020. The world has changed. Over this episode and the next two, we hope to provide you with three perspectives from three leaders at three preeminent law firms, each reimagining how law firms will operate and thrive in the post-COVID 2020s. As always, if you like our discussion, please rate us on Apple Podcasts. We hope you enjoy the conversation. Meredith, thank you so much for joining me on the Modern Lawyer Podcast. It is a pleasure
1: to finally have you on. Thank you so much for having me. I'm, I'm excited to be here and, and to share.
0: So, Meredith, a, a lot of our listeners know who you are, and they know the great work that you're doing over at Sherman and Sterling. But uh, I want I want you to introduce yourself and talk about uh, what you're working on right now. Talk about all of the various things that you're
1: responsible for in your position at at the firm. <laughs> well, that's a, that's a big ask, <laughs> but I'll I'll do my best. Um, so um, most people know who I am; they they know a little bit about my career. But I'll, I'll get give, I'll give the high level of how I got to where I am, and then really what I do right now at Sherman. So, you know, I am the Chief Knowledge and Client Value Officer right now with Sherman and Sterling, based in New York City. Um, and the firm is about 900 lawyers, about 22, 2300 people globally, and 24 offices globally. So we're everywhere we're a full service firm with a heavy focus on on finance so that's that's the general bucket of where i am now but i have been really in legal for about 20 years i started out as a lawyer I made a transition over into the knowledge management space a number of years ago with my prior firm of Baker Donaldson, I stayed at Baker Donaldson for almost 18 years and uh, still love that firm and love all the people there and did, had a lot of great fun doing a lot of very innovative things in that firm and then made the transition to Sherman and Sterling a little over two years ago and, and excited to be here in my current role. For you I'm sorry.
0: on to Sherman and Sterling. I think a lot of our listeners at this point would be curious to know. I mean, you were a partner at Baker Donaldson. You were handling some pretty heavy-duty cases. Uh, I think a lot of folks on the, uh, you know, listening, are going to be curious as to why you decided to make the jump from a practicing attorney, a high-powered practicing attorney, to the knowledge management one.
1: it was so funny. So I'm, I'm trained as a tax lawyer. That's, that's my training. So I have an accounting background, went to law school and, and was really focused on that. And I'll never forget one of the best conversations I had with a gentleman who was a mentor of mine. And he makes the statement, I think you have too much personality to stay as a tax lawyer. I took that as a compliment. (laughs) I really did. (laughs) Uh, But honestly, as much as I love the law, I felt that I was very strapped in in how I could apply that. And we as lawyers are trained to be very risk adverse, to be very pessimistic and not to really rethink structure, process people and and all the components of that. And so I I love the law, but I was bored being a lawyer. And that's an odd statement to make. And at the time, Baker didn't even know what they were going to call this position that they were really going to be uh, exploring. They didn't have it as knowledge management or anything like that. They wanted to have someone associated with technology and the decision-making around technology. That then became knowledge management and a focus on business solutions at, at Baker. And so it was an interesting transition. When I made the leap, there was no one that i knew at the time that had made that transition you know there were there were groups all around the globe we we know them of joshua Firemen and O's and and others that had made that transition from practicing to that. But none of us knew each other yet (laughs) because we're talking like 15 years ago and and where we were all kind of starting to come together as a knowledge management community at the time. I didn't know personally anyone that had made that leap. And so it was a little bit of a frightening moment of, do I leave behind my classical training of being a tax lawyer to go and do this new space and take that risk? Or do I continue down the other path? And, and so and, uh, well, I, ha-
0: I had to look back. My question is kind of a chicken and, uh, or egg one, right? W- were you a tax attorney and, and you looked around at the you know, kind of business problems of the firm, maybe getting new technology, uh, leveraging that technology in ways that could you know, save money for the client and, and thus gain market share for the firm. Did you see all of that and say, ah, that's where I need to go? Or did were you at the point where you kind of looked up and said, well, hey, I might have too much personality for this. Where can I best be
1: utilized? And then you looked around and you found this thing. Honestly, it, it kind of, it was, it was very much happening around me. Baker is one of those very innovative firms. They have been for a very long time. And I, I would still say that today, they're one of the most innovative firms. They have great leadership there. Some great former colleagues of mine that, that continue to do a lot of great things. And my mentor at the time was really the partner in charge of doing this. And he kind of approached me around making this transition into this space. And, and in, it it piqued my interest is, is really what it did is it piqued my interest because it was going to be something unique. It was going to be something that challenged my thought process and it allowed me to focus on the business as much as the practice. So it kind of utilized all aspects of my brain, the creative side, the lawyer side, all kind of meshed together. So I was, I, was looking but not, and the firm was looking but not. <laughs> and then we ended up kind of saying, oh, this is a good fit.
0: Well, and uh, you you might be selling yourself short there a little bit too, Meredith. I mean, the third side I think is the business side, right? I mean, I, a lot of the, the stuff that you've written that uh, comes to mind for me that I sometimes quote and that I sometimes consider when I'm trying to make a decision is a lot of what you've written about the business of law. Uh, certainly, Your title at Sherman and Sterling references that, right, client value officer, in addition to your role uh, leading up, you know, uh, knowledge management, library, information. At what point did you kind of take that path, right, start looking at knowledge, acquisition of information, technology as a business problem, as something that you could handle in a uniquely business-minded way?
1: Well, I think some of that kind of came into play while I was at Baker, but really, you know, I've always had a very business-minded look and feel to things. So when I was at Baker, we were tasked with looking at business problems. Everything that we did was focused on the business problems. And the way I always approach things now is really I have a few mantras. Everything we do should increase revenue, decrease cost, or decrease risk. That's been, you know, kind of core to who I am my 20-year career in every aspect of what I've done. And so my my role at Sherman and Sterling in particular is all focused on that and focused on those mantras and in, in that everything that we should be focused on is really evaluating the practice, understanding where it's going, making some predictions around that and looking at it. Okay, if we make a shift here, is it going to increase revenue? Is it gonna decrease costs or is it gonna decrease risk in the way that we're actually approaching it? And so I think some of that was being done when I was at Baker, not quite to the breadth that I have now. Uh, because Sherman, have a very broad remit, is what I would say. and And it's a fairly large team, global team ar- ar- around the world that really focuses on the entire interaction that we have with the client. So the teams that I have are focused on, I have our entire team focused on conflicts, new business intake, records, and kind of information governance. I have the team focused on legal project management and pricing and matter management and and all of the fun that goes with that. I also have what we call our knowledge and research team, which is a combination of knowledge management and research. And then I also have all of the professional support lawyers. So it's a fairly large team around the globe. But what we do is we are we literally will work with each one of the practice areas and say, okay, this area of law is under stress. And, you know, I'll just take a random one right now. <laughs> IPOs for a particular region might be under stress in our current environment. Right. And how do we know that? How do we know that? Well, data is going to tell you that story. It's going to tell you whether or not a client's going to value a specific task being done or value the work that's being done because they either pay or they don't. And then if they're not, then it's about evaluating how do we do this better? How do we do this differently where it brings the most value to our clients? And so my mantras stay the same. My 20-year career, how can we help increase the revenue, decrease the costs, or decrease the risk? And we try to do that in a very broad-scale way at Sherman.
0: You know, I've seen an increase in firms putting all of these categories under the same executive at the firm. Um, Mm -hmm. I I think that seems to me to be a relatively new thing, you know, happening in the last, call it three to five years. It seems like for that, and certainly when you were at Baker Donaldson, there was the CKO, and there was the CIO, and then maybe a pricing person, former, you know, BCG or Bain or McKinsey consultant kind of type. But it seems mm-hmm. like now a lot of these firms are seeing, and I'm going to use the, you know, the, the corporate uh, bad word, but seeing synergies, right, in yeah. all of these things, right, seeing the fact that, wait a second, pricing, information, KM, they all are servicing the same underlying objective let's put one person in charge of all of them. Do you think, you know, first of all, did I get that right? Maybe maybe I'm totally off base. Second of all, if I'm not off base, is that a trend that you
1: see you know, increasing in, in regularity? No, it absolutely is a trend. You're, and you're about on par, I would say about three years ago, because especially like this role that I have now as the, as the client value officer was new. It was new to me putting all of that under one, but it makes a lot of sense. So I I have this diagram that kind of shows all of the the, the critical touch points that we may have with the client, that we may may think we're bringing value to them. And in every one of those kind of critical functions, whether that's onboarding of a client, due diligence for that particular client, drafting for that client, searching for information for that client, analyzing things for that client, all of that really needs to be under one umbrella. It really has to, because otherwise you're very, very siloed. And, you know, I credit the, the leadership at Sherman for really seeing that early on our senior managing partner and, and our current executive director, actually all of them together kind of coming together and, and kind of diagramming this on a napkin <laughs> is what I've been told that really all of that under one umbrella makes the most sense because, you know, let's, let's just take the, the problem I said a moment ago where we are sitting down looking at a particular area of law saying, okay. This area of law in particular is not profitable. Let's figure out why. Let's analyze all of that. Okay, we may start by using our our legal project management team to map out a process. Well, then that may move into, okay, our opening process is off here because this is emerging company work. We need to have that streamlined. So let's work on a process for that. It may mean that we need to develop precedent. So we need to bring in our PSLs to develop certain precedent to streamline certain tasks. It may be that we need to go out and partner or develop certain types of technology. So our KM and our, our research groups take a part in that. So having that, those silos broken, having it one large team, and we call ourselves the client value team, what we call ourselves. And and having all of us really work together to bring the most value, both to our partners, people within the firm, but also to our clients, that is our critical focus. And I do have to say, we work very closely with the other kind of functional components of the firm, which are, you know, our marketing and BD, our finance department, and our technology department, and our HR department, those all still exist. It's just that this is a role that really is focused on the client, focused on how we bring value to them. Different than necessarily business development, but there's synergies there as well.
0: To what extent do you interface with the client directly? I mean, to what extent do, do partners say, hey, um, Meredith, there's going to be a lot of really tough questions on you know, this pitch or this early client call about pricing. Can you come join? Is that is that uh, part of your purpose? Yeah
1: that's a part of my every day. <laughs> and it's not always me. It may be one of my team members as well. I do have three global directors who are very capable of having that conversation. You know, we have, again, a very broad remit because in some conversations, we'll have some partners say, hey, Meredith, you guys come be the bad guys and, and negotiate our flat fee. That way I'm separate I'm here to be your partner, your lawyer, and yeah, it's my it's my folks over here that are hardlining about us keeping rates where they need to be. And sometimes we'll play that role. Um, what we play a lot of times is kind of the, the central bring it all together role. We do a fair amount where we're doing the full price, where we're going in and we're doing a negotiation, we're doing kind of a bid war. You know, We'll go in for the pitches where we talk about Not the expertise, because the expertise of our lawyers is expected. When you are bringing in Sherman and Sterling, it is expected that you're going to have the top-notch, very well-equipped lawyers to be a part of the conversation. What we may be brought in to talk about is how are we gonna do this work? How are we gonna do it in the most effective way? And what else can we do to differentiate? Can we offer you some type of consulting? Can we offer you some type of knowledge management? Can we offer you, what are those extras that they're going to ask us about potentially in some of those pitches. So I, a good percentage of my time and my team's time, especially my global directors, is spent working on pitches and taking part in pitches or, you know, panel discussions.
0: To what extent are you hiring and utilizing, you know, non-traditional occupations at a law firm in your team? I'm thinking, you know, statisticians and mathematicians or economists, data scientists, engineers. Um, is that premature? I mean, is the firm still still not using folks that are that specialized? Or is that, uh, you know, a increasing type of employee that you're going to be adding to your team as this goes forward, presumably because pricing is extremely sophisticated and building tech and understanding what tech that needs to be built is also extremely sophisticated. Um, are these kinds of folks on your team? And, and if not, are, are you thinking about
1: adding them in the future? Uh, both. We have them on the team now, and we're adding more to the to the team long-term. So we, we started an initiative two years ago, probably about, about four months after I joined, called Sherman Analytics. And this is really a critical strategy that a number of us wrote together. So myself, our CTO really kind of put the the bones to this together. But since then, we've had a number of other great leaders join us and they're helping and kind of execute. But it is a strategy focused on all of the information of the firm and information outside of the firm pulling it together and analyzing it in different ways to where we can differentiate ourselves. Because we believe that innovation is people, innovation is process, innovation is tech, and innovation is data. And you can innovate in all of those different ways. And data is the oil of today. It really, really is. It's your biggest asset. It's your biggest liability. And so our strategy around Sherman Analytics is kind of, it has three critical pillars. One, we have to have clean, healthy collections of data that we can use. So we have to have high data quality, high data ownership, data stewardship, et cetera. Then the second pillar is data governance. It's great that we have all those great, healthy collections, but they have to be governed the way that our clients anticipate and the way that the regulatory framework of the world requires. And then third, we need it in a position, in a way to where it can be analyzed easily by any team member that is functioning here. And so we spent the first two years getting pillar one and pillar two in place. You know, not the sexy work, as I like to refer to it, but getting all of our collections as healthy as possible, moving to the cloud as much as possible, and governing all of that data accordingly based upon, again, the regulatory framework that we have to adhere. Now we're in the sexy fun stuff. So this year alone, we kicked off a cross-functional data analytics team. It's got members, tons of members from the client value, all aspects of the client value team, as well as members from our technology team, as well as members from our financial team and, and others. And our jobs, you know, with our job as an analytics team is really kind of one, skill everybody up, to make certain that we have the right individuals and to see where we need to add additional people, but also to deliver high-value analytical platforms and analysis and different components. It is becoming imperative we need more and more of these types of roles. So we, you know, we have data services people there. We have uh, we have tons of architects. And, and such that are on there. We have some, B, you know, some pure BI people that are on the team. Uh, I, one I just want to say the title of, because I like it so much, is a data ethicist. You know, those types of things. Yeah. We're, that's going to be a role of the future. Yeah. It really is. So we, we've now structured this team and it's a, it, there's a lot of sexy delivery coming out of this team rapidly. And this team really kicked off back in March, oddly enough, right around COVID. <laughs> and some of the first analysis that was being done is how the health trends are impacting the business of the firm and the business of, of a legal services group. And how could we correlate? Could we correlate? If a group was going back out of lockdown, does that are we seeing an increase in any particular area of law? So it started small, but it allowed us to really look at health trend and so external information with internal information at the same time. So yeah, so that is uh, that is an area where we already have it. We already have it structured. That team meets twice a week and is pushing fast and furious on all things data analytics for the future.
0: So I think I could spend a whole podcast just on Sherman Analytics, but I'm going to limit it to just one, one additional question I have. I'd love to, you know, venture into some other uh, other topics that we're going to talk about. But as to Sherman Analytics, I mean, presumably one use of that data also is to feed it into pricing algorithms too, right? Like you you could think oh, yeah. of it exactly how certain issues or controversies or transactions have been concluded or disposed of. And then if a client is asking you to bid on work in a flat fee way, you could look at it and kind of, uh, you know, fit in the puzzle pieces and say, we can profitably do the work for X amount of money. So here's your bid. Is that is that one of the directions of this?
1: Oh yes, that's that's one of the primary reasons why we have to have this. So a ton of our legal project managers are a part of this data analytics team because so much of what we do is we have to analyze past matters to project where they're going in the future. That's what we have to do. Now, the problem that we face as well as most firms face is your past matters have no phase task coding associated with them. So we have to focus on AI to extract and then the and then provide the analytics. Interesting. And that's what, yeah. So our our project managers do that. I don't mind saying it. We use tools like Clocktimizer to do some AI extraction around our past matters to really project how and where we're having where where we could project pricing, but also where we could project better leverage. And it helps us build better plans moving ahead for those different areas of law. So absolutely, our pricing team utilizes heavily, heavily the, the data that we have.
0: Yeah, that, that's that's so interesting. And I take it that all all of this or a lot of this is in practice right now. I mean, Sherman Analytics mm-hmm. isn't some beta project, right? I mean, you I you brought brought this out as you mentioned the very uh, early days of COVID in March. You know, we're speaking in in November. So it has been up and active for eight months or so. What other yeah. kinds of problems is it solving within the firm that maybe wouldn't be on the normal, um, you know, legal technology observers radar? I mean, what kinds of insights is it providing that lets the firm make better decisions?
1: Well, I find that interesting to, to ask that question. So it, I will say this, that we we do a fair amount of analysis of like, of the past two decades. Um, You know, we try to look to see where growth has been, where contraction has been, both in the market as well as within our locations. Mm -hmm. And so it it provides a ton of insight where, you know, what we're facing right now as a country in the U.S., but also globally is, you know, and as an industry, there's not been another global pandemic for the past 100 years. So if you don't have a business model to associate with what that looks like and what the potential recovery plan looks like, it's very difficult to to look at that. So what you have to do is you have to look at data to do potential predictive projections. And that's what we've been been really looking at is looking to see over over the years of data that we have where can we start to bring out insights? Because the data is just the data. I mean, I can hand you a 50,000 row spreadsheet and that's great and fine if you're an accountant because I was one and that's just sexy to me, but that's not sexy to anyone else. And what we have to draw from that data is we've got to really go from the data to really the knowledge and really from that to draw some insights so that our leadership can answer critical business decisions around the future of legal. And I mean, we're, we're really at an odd place right now because of COVID, because of where we are as an industry is, you know, it's going to be interesting, the recovery from this financially and, and what's going to happen and, and how law firms are going to look on the other side.
0: It seems like law firms that don't have similar functionality are going to be at a big disadvantage going forward. Uh, that's not meant to be a softball. You know, it just, it just kind of what, what occurs to me here as I'm listening to this, it would seem that um, a, you know, law firm name analytics and some way to utilize, uh, you know, matter data and budget data and spend data to make decisions w- within the firm, uh, you know, is... is critical going forward. I also don't think it's done very much, right?
1: It's not. It's very interesting. I can't remember who, who kind of said this to me early on in, in the pandemic component of all of this. I was on a call with with some folks and they were like, let's go back to traditionally what we've done. Let's just focus on the core. And I said, no, let's expand. Let's focus on how we support the business right now and and that's really the important pivot that we made the choice to make we made the choice to say okay how can we support the business as they're trying to deal with the day-to-day changes that the pandemic is is having upon us and 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 it is day-to-day changes i mean in the in the first i think 30 days of the pandemic There were 1,500 legislative components around the globe that were (laughs) enacted, whether that be lockdowns or, or mandates or travel restrictions or whatever it may have been. Simply analyzing that alone, that external amount of what's going on and the impact to your internal business had to be done. So we started by, by doing that analysis. So we look at the power of this is where we, we take external data, what's going on in markets, in regions, in the economy, around the globe, you combine those insights with our insights internally. It's extremely, extremely powerful. Um, And and we get to provide a lot of that to our leadership.
0: Well, I think this is a really good segue uh, to the next topic I want to get to and cover, you know, you're talking about all this change happening in law firms as a result of the pandemic and the associated recession. There's a lot of folks who are talking about this across many, many industries. We've talked about this on this particular podcast. You know, I've I've discussed this with Monet Fauntleroy at Cooley and and Zach Abramowitz, the entrepreneur and, and journalist, talking about remote work, talking about hoteling and real estate, talking about Client expectations, you know, namely that they may want to decouple from their bill the expensive high rise or uh, skyscraper yeah. real estate from the great work done by the associate or the partner in rural Ohio or wherever they are, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, wh- one angle that you've brought to this that I really want to uh, uh, bring out, and I think it, it subsumes a lot of these other themes as well, is the path from legal work being done at a law firm to legal work being done by a legal services company, right? And then the transition from, you know, Amlaw 25, Amlaw 50 law firms being purely law firms, namely, hey, we've got a bunch of billable hours on the shelf. Uh, Mr. Client or Mrs. Client, feel free to grab a couple and check out over there, right? To a collaborative solution-based consultative manner of actually solving problems as they come up I might have butchered that but I want you to talk about um, that, that transition especially prompted by these exigent circumstances that we're living in now from uh, you know from law firm to legal services company and so first of all what do you mean about that that general framework of a legal services company? Yeah, as a legal services company, and the difference between a law firm and a legal services company.
1: So, so let, let's let's break that down, and and there are some critical differences to that. Um, so, a law firm is traditionally a partner-owned law firm, owned by lawyers, run by lawyers. It's kind of like trying to get anything passed through a 200 to 300 partner law firm is like trying to get a piece of legislation passed through the U.S. Congress. It, you know. It, it, it's, it's fun and not all at the same time because right. you have the two to 300 sponsors that you have to go and convince this is the right course of action to go and do. Um, so, so that's kind of what a traditional law firm has looked and felt like for, for years, hundreds of years. That That's really what it's been. But, you know, when you, when you also now look at what some states here in the U.S. US have chosen, like Utah uh, and a couple of others. You also look at the U.K. market and other things where alternative service providers are coming in And they're offering up services in a different way. They're professional services companies, just as a law firm is, but they're they're offering up services very differently in more of a packaged kind of fashion. So you have the big four, but you also have a number of other alternative service providers doing this. And now, you know, the UK has provided where non-partners can own shares in law firms. And now certain states within the US have that capability as well. And so what what I talk about and, and what a lot of people in this industry talk about when you're talking about legal services provider is why are we only focused on the legal aspect of consulting with our clients? Because our client constantly tells us one of the number one things that impacts how much share of the wallet we get from them is how much partnership and we offer to them, and how much we know about their business. They want us, they want to feel like we are a business partner to them, that we understand their business, that we understand their risks, and we help them make decisions for their business. Because ultimately, that's what they're trying to do, is make decisions for their business. So in that sense, why are we limiting ourselves to just the legal, the legal consulting component of that? What we see now more and more in the fact that, you know, we are being asked to come to pitches and to talk about how we are gonna execute upon their work, we then start to get asked, well, how can we get better at what we do? How can we, you know, have a KM person here? Or how can we do KM within our legal operations space? How can we have better technology here in our legal operations space? So why are we limiting ourselves in just the legal advice when we can also offer up some of the legal operations advice at the same time? And so when we talk about legal services, we see a path to the future of really firms kind of combining some of those services together to where you're really allowing a true partnership with a lot of your clients where you're listening to their business needs, you're trying to guide them on the legal advice of components. But, you know, think about cybersecurity alone. Think about data governance alone. Think about privacy law alone and how so much of technology and the law intertwine. And the fact that we're doing that within Sherman and that we're also trying to talk about that with a lot of our clients that are asking us to do so, there's an opportunity there. And so to me, the difference is, you know, a traditional law firm has really looked at it as I'm here to offer legal advice. And that's very much that strict pattern of doing that. And a legal services is broadening that. That's really the critical difference.
0: Yeah, I I love that. And that's something that has been echoed on this podcast so many times. I'm thinking back to the episode that we had with Jason Barnwell, the AGC at Microsoft, the episode we had with Bradley Mm -hmm. Gayton. Uh, who at the time was the GC of Ford, and now he's the GC of Coca-Cola International. They all say the same thing, which you've which you just articulated very well, which is we pay these high rates and uh, get these really, really smart people on the other side of the table because we want them to solve our business problems. We're not purely just trying uh, to route legal problems to them because if they could solve business problems, why wouldn't we let them solve those business problems? Um, that's exactly I, right. Yeah, yeah, and I, that, that's that's fascinating. And so um, do, do you think there's going to be a, a rift in the market on this? I mean, do you view the market splitting here where you have some sophisticated firms that can hire the Merediths of this world and, and they <laughs> can equip you and, and allow you to uh, hire a, a lot of very... Very smart, very sophisticated, very expensive people, right, working as part of this effort. Uh, And then there's going to be other firms who simply uh, can't make the numbers work. Uh, is Is this the kind of the direction the legal industry is going in your mind or am I being a little too alarmist about
1: that? I don't. I don't call it alarmist. I just say potentially, uh, and 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 that's that's not me hedging. It's me saying it, it depends on what you really want to have out of your firm. There's always going to be a space for certain boutique type of organizations that are heavily focused on the nuanced issues that are focused that, that a business may need, um, and and that's always going to be there. But I do see more and more, and and this comes directly from the conversations with a lot of clients that I have, is how do we do things better? It's the how question, as much a part of their business as the the why or the what sometimes. Um, and as I referenced, there's so many things intertwined today, because you know, I, I look at what I do a lot for Sherman is, is I'm I'm providing legal advice on technology issues sometimes. <laughs> and and so I'm being asked to now do that really for a lot of our clients or a lot of our clients are now asking of that for us. So I look at this as an opportunity. You know, right now we have so many companies that are competing in this space to do things, but we at Sherman have excellent lawyers. We draw people because of our exceptional experience. So why not you know, harness and utilize the brand name of Sherman, and then also partner when needed with other alternative service providers when necessary, Uh, you know, uh, other companies such as legal tech companies, why not have a broader depth there of an opportunity to really feel the need of that client every day? Why not have that? I look at it as such an opportunity. So I think where the firms, where the traditional law firm is willing to take that and really move, there there's a lot of revenue opportunity there and that's that's the reason any law firm is really going to want to go after this when you take a look at the legal operations space and i don't know what the 2020 figures are but i'm going to go off of 2018 and 2019 we're talking multiple billions of dollars is what we're talking about in revenue in in kind of this legal operations space that's being filled by a lot of different companies If we can do that at Sherman, if you can do that in the guise of a law firm and tap into just 1% of that, that's an additional revenue stream. Why not? Now, you got to do it well and you got to do it right. You can't just go after a market and not do it well. But if you do that and and you bring in and you offer that expertise, just like you offer the Sherman name from the legal side, man, that's an opportunity.
0: Now, you know, are there any partners left who just say, hey, Meredith, you know, just play the hits, you know, we're Sherman and Sterling, we're a, uh, you know, very uh, moneyed, successful law firm, we bill hourly and solve legal problems for clients, don't make this fancier than, than it needs to be, <laughs> we're doing great, all right, we don't need to be saved. Thanks. but No, thanks, Meredith. Is there at all any of that impulse uh, at the firm? Or are they like, are they bought
1: into the, to to your worldview here? Well, I mean, I think in any situation, you're going to have different people, people that are living and breathing and doing extremely well off of a current environment. Do they really want change? No. Exactly. Let's, be frank about, let's be frank about that. However, if, if you change the conversation and say, that's great. Your current situation won't change. Can we add to it? That's the conversation. Right. Is that, don't, don't let me take away from your current situation. I'm not, I'm not saying that. Continue to do exactly what you're doing. Do it exceptionally well. Be the number one lawyer in the country doing X, Y, and Z. Continue to do that. Let's just add this to it so that you can grow your business. That's the different conversation. You know, I,
0: I'm uh, going to record a episode of, of this podcast with uh, someone you, who you may know, a uh, fellow by the name of Toby Brown, Hubert Um And, uh, you know, I, I was talking to him about uh, something adjacent to this, um, it, you know, the other day, we're going to talk about it. It's probably going to be the podcast after this one. But, you know, he was disambiguating, you um, you know, transactional business from institutional business. And that's a bit confusing. He's obviously gonna do a better, better job of articulating it than I just did. But by transactional business, he doesn't mean transactional versus litigation. He means a one off MA or a one-off litigation. Yep. And by institutional, he means, you know, X firm gets all of the M&A yeah. Microsoft in North America, or all of the litigation yeah. from Walmart, you know, in Asia, or whatever it may be, um, is that is that how you're thinking about this as well? I mean, is ultimately the path to more revenue here going to be just expanding the pie so much that it doesn't matter that you're you're spending less time on each individual representation
1: when you have way, way more total representations? I I think it depends. Your institutional clients, the ones that you do all of that work for, there's a bigger opportunity there because you have the trust of those individuals. But really, I think you said it well, we're, we're expanding the pie, but let's think about it like this. If you think about the amount of work that comes from our our big companies around the globe, there's tons of statistics on this, but there's statistical representation that will state to you right now that for the past two years, that about 45% of that work is going to the traditional law firm. So we're all fighting for the same legal work, all of us, that 45%. 6% Six percent is going to the alternative service provider, but 48 to 49% is staying in house. And those individuals have to figure out the right way to do some of that work. And to me, that's where there's opportunity in that legal operations space, is that they're trying to do this. They're trying and they're keeping it in house because they think it's going to save money long term in some way, form, or fashion. So, so how can we help get a revenue stream to that? So uh, you you said it, it's it's the expansion of the pie. Instead of us still continuing to fight over that 45%, let's expand what offerings there are. Is it easier to do that with your institutional clients? Yes, it is. It's much easier because you have the trust, you have the partnership, they're going to listen to you. You generally will have that type of relationship. But it's still the possibility there of a mid-sized bank that may absolutely need someone to help them in that space. It, it's just, there, there's more opportunity in some of those components. So, you know, to me, it's, uh, I, I think you've got opportunity in both. It may be easier or an easier sell in some of your institutional, but your other one-offs may or may not have the infrastructure to do full-on legal operations internally and may have more of an opportunity there.
0: To what extent are the big four dipping their toes into, into legal ops and trying to you know, take this work uh, for themselves. I mean, I, I feel like the, the, there's a, a lot of sizzle, not much stake when it comes to the big four in law. I mean, we've been talking about this for a really long time, but I don't see any evidence of the big four really making dramatic or, um, or substantial uh, strides in legal ops. Look, that may be their approach to this, right? It may be very slow and very, very incremental, and happen over 10-year periods of time. But in your view, from your perspective, are you seeing that as a, a kind of a, a material issue in the market?
1: They're making a bigger impact abroad than they are here in the U.S. Yes. Why? It's because it's because of the unauthorized practice of law. They can't really do what they want to do here until some of that changes. Now, the moment that that changes, you'll start to see the erosion in some of that kind of commoditized type of work that has already been taken over in the UK. I'll give you a small example. Um, you know, If you think about like the LIBOR repapering right now because of the regulatory shift, yep. so much of that work may be managed by a top tier law firm like us or another one, but a lot of the commoditized just full on repaper is going to absolutely the alternative service providers. And the way they're doing it The how that they're doing it is by bringing in and saying, oh, well, we're going to help you doing all the tech. We're going to help you doing all of this. We're going to bring you lessons learned, knowledge management, all these components along with the bundled deal. So what they're doing is offering you, one, the commoditized services that they can you know, throw 300 paralegals at very quickly. They can partner with a big name firm to, quote, manage them to overcome the UPL issues. And then they sell you on all the operations. So yes, they're going into this market. They absolutely are. It's just, it's not as much in the US and it won't be as much in the US until we start to see some of the laws change, which we are seeing in like Utah and a couple of other states.
0: That's fascinating. Meredith, again, I could talk to you about each one of these subjects uh, for a, an hour each. I mean, there's, there's so much to discuss here. I mean, you know, I, I could go into this trend of uh, in-house, the office of the GC, adding so many professionals in their ranks and the implications wow. of that and, you know, how that affects law. As you just mentioned, 48 to 49% of, uh, of work is done uh, internally what are the implications of that the good the bad the ugly the fact that um you know they they may be doing that because they think they could save a lot of money and it may turn out that uh in the long term they don't right um uh, let me get your thoughts on that first i, I
1: can't resist i can't resist um you- I, I will tell you this: yeah. they're bringing it in house, and they're saying that they're going to keep it in house. But also, then they're turning back and saying, "Hey, hey, firm, can you help us do this as effectively as you were? Right. Can, can you can you help us? That's why there's such an opportunity: is because they're holding so much in house, but yet they won't, they they can't hire a me, or they can't hire some, you know, some of the other key people that I may have on my staff. And so they get they start to ask, "Hey, can you can you guide us a little bit?" on, you know, a document management system, how to manage knowledge management, how to do data analytics. So we start to get those questions when they've taken that work in-house.
0: Yeah, I think that that seems to be a, a clear trend uh, of the next, it is. Certain, certainly five, 10 plus years. Meredith, I'm going to ask you one last question here, because I know you're, you're okay. busy, is a very busy time. And, and that last question is, uh, can you provide our listeners a prediction Uh, As to how the legal industry will change in the next 20 years, you could talk about, you know, the big four, talk about coronavirus, talk about, you know, (laughs) the change of law firms over this period of time, you know, winners, losers. Uh, From your perspective, seeing all of this in real time at Sherman and Sterling, how will the legal industry be different in 20 years?
1: I'm not even going to go 20 years. I'm going to go a shorter time frame than that. Um, I think as we start to see the recovery from the pandemic, which is going to happen. I mean, we are are at work now. So I'm just going to say that. I'm not going to say recovering to going back to work. We're all working now. What I'm talking about is the economic recovery. We are going to see a recovery. Um, Over the course of the next three to five years, there's going to be a recovery of the economy. I think what's going to happen on the other side of that is that law firms are going to have to make a shift. Because let's let's be frank, we're offering a ton of discounts across the board from all law firms to a lot of clients today because of the economic pressures that we're all feeling. Do you think anybody's going to want to go back to paying full rates? Do we really, really think that? So as the economy starts to come back, we have to start adjusting to what we are and what we're offering to those clients. So in the next three to five years, there's going to start to see really a clear delineation. I'd say AmLaw 50 is going to really start honing in on a ton of that really top tier kind of ultra premium work and start to really run because they're going to find unique ways to differentiate themselves. They really, really are, and it's going to be in different ways. I mean, some are going to go after the legal app space, and we're going to go after different ways of of kind of differentiating and providing that full value to their clients. You're going to start to see that pull away, but I think the business model of your traditional law firm is going to pivot. It's going to pivot. You're going to instead of seeing kind of this triangular model of massive amounts of associates, fewer of, of kind of your counsel, their senior associate and fewer partners as you kind of go up, you're going to now have more of a rocket model with lots and lots of different people that are servicing your clients. You're going to see tons of people that are partnering with the, the big four and alternative service providers. But ultimately, the business model of a, what, quote, law firm is, is going to shift. And I think it's going to be a legal services company. That's where I personally think it's going to be. I could be wrong. But I think it's going to be there. And I think we're already starting to see some of that. But COVID, the pandemic, and the economic crisis around the globe has really accelerated the acceptance of change. Not accelerated the change, but accelerated the acceptance. We're pulling people along to understand these changes. Now, they're very much in the face of of every single person that's running law firms today and trying to find how they can squeeze this additional percentage here and this additional percentage there. That's my prediction. That's, that's fascinating. You know, I I think there's, there's, there's such rapid, I mean, the the theme of this podcast
0: is rapid change in the legal industry. And, you know, when I first started this podcast several years ago, I could not have even imagined the speed at which the legal industry is changing. And I think you're spot on the recession, this pandemic, you know, we're not just going to simply snap back to uh, the days before this all started. I, I, I fully agree. Meredith, I want to thank you on behalf of Case Text, on behalf of myself, on behalf of the Modern Lawyer podcast for joining me and discussing this. Uh, I think our our listeners are going to absolutely love hearing your thoughts on this. So thank you.
1: Thank you so much for having me. I, I hope it was insightful in some small way.
0: Thanks for listening to the Modern Lawyer Podcast. We always love hearing from you and we highly value your feedback. Reach out to me at onim at text.com, Tweet at us with the hashtag Modern Lawyer and check us out at modernlawyerpodcast.com. We hope you join us for our next episode. Special thanks to the Casetext team, especially our producer extraordinaire, Abby Hadidian. See you soon.